it's great to be back with you. I have missed you, and I've missed teaching in here, although, uh, man, you were in good hands for pretty much all this semester, right? Um, our number of our TES guys and even other Boundless leaders stepping in and, and filling in in the series. Just want to say thank you, big thank you for that. Um, it's been very, very helpful as I was teaching on Sunday nights, and it was a sweet, sweet series, man, practical, practical tips on the one another's and, and cultivating that, those friendships right here in Boundless, and so there's a, that's a precious thing to have so many of you as our friends and uh, just ways we can practice the one another. so I trust that was a good series for you, and I know it was encouraging to me. But you may be wondering, uh, may have been wondering, what we are going to study next, how many of you have been wondering that? A few of you. People are like, what? I didn't know the series was over. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to give you a teaser. Uh, it was my intention to study the topic of singleness. Uh, that's been a, a hot discussion amongst many of you. So, uh, but that's not, <laughs> that's not going to happen right now. You're like, singleness? I thought maybe dating? Maybe that's a little bit better. Uh, but no. Uh, a lot of questions around the, the topic of singleness right now, and I'd love to try to field some of those in a series, but that's not happening today. That's going to have to wait till next next uh, semester, because uh, we figured with Thanksgiving break coming up and then with Christmas break coming up that most of you wouldn't be here. So that said, we're going to postpone it to uh, to next semester, Lord willing, and we're going to try to work through that that topic. <clears throat> but what I want to do for the next few weeks, really just kind of set it up today is uh, talk about one of those foundational topics. And, and, you know, after I said that about singleness and how we're going to wait, they're going to think, well, what's this topic, right? This is not important. It's actually probably one of the most foundational topics ever. Um, so as the more I was prepping about this, the more I thought about, okay, well, they'll just have to listen to it online, I guess. So uh, I want to start a series uh, really on the topic of Scripture itself, okay? The topic of Scripture itself, and I think I've got this up here. There we go. Now, you might be thinking the topic of the scriptures, like, don't we teach about scripture every week? Uh, yes, we do. We teach from the scriptures every week, um, but we don't often teach about it, about scripture itself. And specifically, what I'm kind of targeting in this series is I want, you, I want to dial in on the claims that the Bible makes about itself, right? It's a book unlike any other book, and it claims that for itself. So I remember I was talking to a, a guy one time in my house, unbeliever, we were talking, and I was like, what do you do with the Bible? I asked him that. And he said, well, it's just, it's a good book. Like, I, I think it's a helpful book. It's obviously shaped Western civilization, and, and it's, it's, it's a good book. And I said, like, a good book among many? And he's like, yeah. I was like, well, do you, do you understand that by saying that, you just pit yourself against what the authors of Scripture itself said, say about that book? Um, it doesn't claim that it's a good book among many. It claims that it is authoritative, unique revelation from the one true and living God that's binding on every creature. And so I got a little awkward in that conversation, but it was good because um, he already knew that, and I was pressing it, pressing it home. You can't say that the Bible is just a good book among many. You undercut the very claims of Scripture itself. So what I want us to do is dial in on some of those claims over the next few weeks. We'll see how long it takes us, um, probably through Christmas break most likely, but I uh, want to dial in on some of those claims. And like I said, this is probably one of the most crucial topics that we could look at, um, if not the most crucial, and 
that's, that's the case for a number of reasons, okay? What I'm about to say uh, may sound like a bit of an overstatement, but I can assure you that it's, it's not. Everything in your life, everything in your life rises or falls on what you do with this book and how you think about it. Everything rises or falls on what you do about God's words, on what you believe or don't believe about the written word of God, on how you respond or don't respond to God's words. It's literally a life or death issue. And you could just ask, if they were around, you could ask our first parents, right? Adam and Eve. They allowed a talking snake to sow doubt about God's words. In His mercy, God had warned them that if they stopped trusting His words, if they neglect His commandments, if they transgressed His command, they would die. They would die. There is no life outside of trusting God's words. But the snake said the opposite. He said, you won't surely die. He introduced to them another path. They could trust him, the snake, instead. And they could be like God themselves. They could rival him and call their own shots. They could determine good and evil apart from God on their own, apart from his word. They thought. And so they chose that path. And they transgressed. And ever since, that's led to death. Humans, from those days on, have been born with that defiant nature. Like we heard about in Romans this morning. It's that nature that is inherently opposed, opposed to God's words. That's the default setting for human. People think they know what is best apart from the written word of God. We think our desires are infallible. We think that we're they're a sure guide to what's true. We think our own assessments of things are inerrant and trustworthy. But there's a way that seems right to us, and in the end it leads to death. Why is that? It's all because people spurn God's word. Every second someone dies, and every second someone faces the consequences of that rejection of God's words. They face the consequences of not taking God's word seriously, and they fall headlong into eternal torment forever. All because of what they chose to do with God's words. Destinies are at stake, and it comes down to what people believe about this book. But as Christians, the story is different for us. Because we've had our eyes and ears opened to God's very word. Somebody told you about Jesus, you believed it, praise God. You heard the shepherd's voice, you tasted and saw that he's good, and you continue to taste and see that he's good in the scriptures. And you crave this book now. Like we've heard in 1 Peter, you crave it like a baby craves milk. And that's because God's caused that in you. He's caused you to crave his word. He's opened your ears. He's caused you to see its truthfulness to experience its nourishment. And now you desire this word, and before you didn't. Before we were saved, the scriptures were boring. Right? I mean, how many times as a kid growing up were you trying to, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but I'd rather do all these other things instead. Like literally anything but this. The scriptures seemed irrelevant. Right? Like, what does Leviticus mean? You might still be wondering that now. (laughs) We know we should read the Bible. We knew then, you know, but we never did. But now, after God has given us life, the scriptures themselves come alive. And like we saw on Thursday, though, 
our desire for the scripture isn't always consistent, right? Even though we've been born again, we have this new craving, it's been implanted within us, the desire kind of comes and goes, waxes and wanes a bit. Even as believers, sometimes we treasure it, other times we, we don't, it kind of grows dull to us, our desires for the book wax and wane sometimes. Even though the Lord's made us alive, Paul says that Satan is still tempting us, and he's still tempting us, his words, just like he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Even as a believer, Satan is still trying to deceive you away from a pure devotion to Christ and a pure devotion to his word. Look what Paul writes here as he's writing to this church in in Corinth. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I was betrothed to you as one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But notice this. But I am afraid that just like as, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan's still tempting even the believer. And so what is going to keep us devoted to Christ, devoted to his words? What will cause us to grow and thrive in spiritual fruitfulness in this life? What's going to keep you from the schemes of Satan and from kind of jettisoning the word of God? Well, it starts with a deepening conviction about the Bible. And you must deepen your convictions about this book. So that when Satan comes and he says, did God really say? When he tries to sow doubt about God's book, we need to know what the book claims for itself. What the Bible says about itself. And we need to yield to those claims. And as we do, as we deepen those convictions about Scripture, as we learn to stake our lives on this book, some incredible things are going to happen. I want you to jot down, just intro, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I want you to go read that at some point this week. Because Psalm 119 is sort of a first-hand testimony from a man who has deep convictions about the Scriptures. Deep convictions about the Word of God. We hear from this man, and he lets us in to what these kind of convictions produce. What happens in the life of someone who has deep-rooted convictions in the Scriptures? He tells us. He models it for us. And it's what you and I can expect in our lives as those convictions begin to deepen. Don't worry about writing these down. If you want all the references on it, don't ask me. Go read Psalm 119 and find it yourself. Here's some things you can expect, all right? You and I will store up the word in our hearts to keep us from sinning if we value it. We'll meditate on it consistently. It'll become like a lamp to light the path for your feet. To make your life fruitful. We'll find ourselves growing wiser than those around you. Even people who are older than you and more experienced in you than life. You will grow wiser than them. We'll feel the areas that we need clarity in our life. We'll see the areas that, okay, well, I know the lamp is lighting that, but I don't know what it says. So I'm going to pant and long. My mouth's going to open for the words of God. Your soul will be consumed with longing for his words at all times. I'm just literally quoting from this. Psalm 119. And then when you do find clarity in Scripture, you'll experience joy like someone rejoices when they find treasure or they come into a vast inheritance when you find the Word of God and you have clarity in your life. It'll become better than thousands of gold or silver pieces. It will taste sweeter than honey or candy. The Word will be the joy of your heart. 
You'll sing about His Word. Your lips will pour forth praise because of His Word. Not only will you rejoice, but you'll be incensed at those who mock the truthfulness of Scripture. Your eyes will pour out tears for those who don't keep the precept. And even when we suffer at the hands of those enemies, we'll find ourselves strengthened by these words. Even when everything is crashing down around us, we will hope in His Word. We'll even be thankful for affliction because affliction, he says, will teach us to stick with the word. That's pouring out of this man who has deep convictions about the Bible and what it can produce in the life. All right, so in this series, then, I want to give you a crash course on what the Bible claims about itself. Okay, I'm calling it obviously the written word because that's the focus, is on these texts, this anthology of texts that we have. We call our Bibles. And I want to focus on the claims of Scripture, what the Scripture says about itself. And if you're a theology person, uh, you'll probably recognize these words. Uh, This study is called the attributes of Scripture. Bibliology, if you will. It's not all of bibliology, but it's a certain portion of it. It's called the qualities of Scripture. We're going to be looking at things like inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, authority, all all those good things. And I want to help you think more deeply and carefully about those terms, what they mean, where we get them from, from the Scriptures themselves, so that you'll treasure the Bible and you'll stake your whole life in devotion upon it. All right? So, first place to start when we're looking at at the Scriptures and trying to get get an idea about the Bible's claims for itself is uh, this idea that we call inspiration. So, that's where we're starting here. This first lesson is on inspiration. Excuse me. You'll often hear us saying that we believe that the Bible is inspired by God, right? We say that often. And we must believe that it's inspired if we're going to stake our whole lives upon it. We've got to deeply know that both Old and New Testaments come to us from God Himself. That's the essence of being inspired. God sourced the Word, He's its source. It's divine. And the rest of what we're going to look at in this study, all the other attributes of Scripture are going to really flow downstream from this one. Like, if it didn't come from God, then what are we doing? Right? Like, it's, it's got, it must be inspired. Everything else flows downstream from this. And so, in the time we have left this morning, just want to look at, at a couple questions. I'm going to answer a few questions for you. Uh, I think it's four. Let me scroll down and see. Yep, four questions. I went through many iterations yesterday. Four questions. That's what we landed on. All right, number one, we want to ask this question first. Where does the Bible claim inspiration? Let's get our moorings here with some key areas. Where does the Bible directly claim to be inspired, to be from God? Well, it's kind of a hard question. Well, not hard because there's a few key texts, but really it's implicit throughout the Bible. Okay? You can literally almost open to any, any page and scroll around for a little while, and you're going to find some statement, thus says the Lord, right? Or something, something like that. Moses, go, take, go write these, what I've told you in a, in a book, you know. Read it to the people. You see those things happening throughout, both throughout, the, throughout the Old Testament explicitly, and you see other, other claims in the New but probably the easiest place to go that teaches inspiration is in 2 Timothy 
2 Timothy 3.16. And here Paul is talking about the Old Testament. And he says that, that all of it, the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture is God-breathed, right? God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. Look with me in 2 Timothy 3. I've got all these references on the screen, so it'll save us some time. Just jot them down, you know, and then you can go back and meditate on them, look at it, figure out some questions. I'm just kind of giving you a crash course this morning of this, of this idea of inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this actually teaches us a couple things about Scripture, but the only thing we're focusing on this morning is its source. It's breathed out by God, says Paul. And it's important to note here that when he says Scripture, he's talking about the writings. That would be another way you could translate that, the writings. So this has its idea as the written word of God, the writings. And all the writings are, he says, breathed out by God. And in this case, when he says all the writings, what's he talking about? The Old Testament. Yeah, he's talking about the Old Testament. It's all Scripture, all the writings are breathed out by God. Here's Paul talking about the Old Testament. And he says the entirety of it is, is from God. In this case, he's talking about the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those, those would be the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. In some places, you would see the law, prophets, and the Psalms, like in Luke 24, when Jesus talks about that. But the point here that I'm trying to draw out is that the Scriptures are breathed out by God. And that's, that language, being breathed out, is evocative of something. It's evocative of what? What do you think? Genesis, creation, that's right. So the point, why is he, why is he describing it like that? Well, because Scripture itself is sort of an act of God's creation. He's bringing it to bear on us as his humans. Paul declares that the entire Old Testament came about as God's creative act. It's from him himself. And so that means that God is the ultimate source of Scripture. Okay? God is the source of Scripture. It's where it come, he's where it comes from. It's breathed out by him. And it's not just Paul that teaches that explicitly. That's a, kind of a slam dunk verse for the Old Testament. Here's another one. Um, is, come on now, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. We'll jump on over to that one here on the screen. Peter makes a similar statement to Paul here in, this, in this, these verses. And here he's talking about the prophetic word of the Old Testament as well. He says, just lifting some of this out, right? You can go back and look at it in context. But he says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And there he's talking about, I think he has in view, prophecy in the Old Testament. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So, like, from a human? Not produced from that. It's not sourced in a human. But men spoke from God. From God. There's the source. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, no prophecy produced by the will of man, meaning humans, the prophets themselves, were not the originators of the prophecy. Men spoke. It's not that men weren't utilized by God as instruments. They were, they are. They're the agents of prophecy, but they're not the source. Here, Peter makes explicit that God used men as the conduits of inspiration. Men spoke from God, so God is the source of the prophetic word. 
And, they, and he underscores it by the fact of saying they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were propelled along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke. That's just another way of saying that God is all over the written texts of the Old Testament. He produced them. He's filling the, the mouths of the prophets with, with these truths. He's carrying them along by the same Spirit that we have now in the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit was propelling them along in that. So that's the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? All right, second question. How do we know that the New Testament is inspired? How do we know that? Well, I'm going to give you uh, a warning. What time is it? 11.33. Uh, This is going to be the bulk of the message, okay? So don't panic. And I'll try to cover it quick. If you don't, what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to lay a foundation for you, okay? A foundation for you that hopefully will carry you through the rest of the series. So if it seems a little heady, seems like we're moving fast, it's because we are. And if you've got questions, come talk to me. I'd love to, love to help you unpack this. But where does it start? Okay, as we're thinking about inspiration in the New Testament, often people will appeal to those other verses that we just looked at, but those verses are actually talking about the Old Testament. So let's think about the New. How do we know that those New Covenant documents are also inspired? Well, it starts with Jesus himself, right? So Jesus' words carried divine authority. That becomes clear. And Jesus' words revealed new revelation beyond what was revealed in the Old Covenant. So it wasn't different. It was in continuity with it, meaning it was the next step in God's redemption, God's redemptive plan. But it was, di- it was new. It was previously unrevealed. Jesus' words carried divine authority. He was God. And his, his words revealed new revelation. Let's look at each of these real quick. Luke 4. From the, like, the, the very first moment, and this is like the very first moment in, in Jesus' public ministry, and Luke records this for us. He says, he went down to Capernaum, city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching for, here's the reason that they were like, whoa, his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. It was unlike other human teachers. It came with divine authority. Okay, so there's, there's our first claim that, the Lord's words, Jesus' words, possessed divine authority. And then second, Luke 8, he's revealing new things to them. So he's, just t- he's teaching them these parables. They're like, hey, tell us what these mean. So he comes alongside, tells them the meaning, and he says, to you, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, it's, what he's just, it's what he's teaching them about. He's bringing, he's opening up these secrets to them, things that haven't been revealed yet. Gospel mysteries. But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. His point is that the disciples are getting insider info of this new revelation that God is doing in and through Jesus. Just as he predicted. Again, it's in, it's in continuity with the prophets. It's not different from what they said. It's the next step. And Jesus is bringing that to bear. You could also write down Revelation 1.1 on that if you want to, on this, this point that Jesus is bringing new, new truth. It says that explicitly there as well. I mean, there's lots of other places we could look at, but high level. All right, let's jump back. All right, so he's got authority, and he's revealing new revelation. And next, here's the next step. Jesus delegates this authority to the apostles, to the 12, right? And then Judas falls away according to plan. Down to 11, the Matthias gets, you know, appointed, so back to 12. 
And then here comes Paul later, who's also an apostle. Not of the twelve, but same status. So the apostles, Jesus delegated this authority to them. And he appointed these guys. You know, he delegated his authority to heal, but he also delegated his authority in the word, in, 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 in truth. And so we'll see that in Luke 9. But he appointed these guys to proclaim his words and preserve them. Okay? Jesus didn't write any books. These guys did. And that's why, he, that's why he appointed them. He appointed them to preach and to preserve. That's the way you can think about it. Think of it. Preach orally, preserve in written form this good news of the kingdom. It's implications. So let's look at Luke 9. Maybe. There we go. It says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority. Did they have it in themselves? No. Where did it come from? Jesus. He gave it to them. And he gave it power over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Those mysteries that they've just been privy to, now they get to go proclaim them. And to heal. In demonstration of the, of the new creation that's breaking in. So, Jesus delegated his authority to his apostles. And then, okay, next, next bit of this foundation. Jesus promised that his spirit would bring his words to their remembrance. Okay? So you got the twelve, then plus Paul later. And Jesus is promising that when he gives his spirit to his people, when he pours out the spirit, Acts 2, that the Spirit's going to bring to mind, bring to their remembrance, everything Jesus taught them while he was here. Jesus promised his Spirit would bring his own words to their remembrance. Look at me in John 14. He says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you, that's the twelve, you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Spirit's going to do two things. Put the first one in, a, in your back pocket. We're going to come back to that in the next point. Okay? He's going to teach you all things, and, notice this, He's going to bring to your remembrance what I've told you. So I've been teaching you for three years. You've absorbed probably like 1% of it. You know, This is my elaboration. But the Spirit's going to help you. He's going to bring these things to your remembrance. Why? So they could disseminate it, right? And not just what he taught, but he said, Jesus promised his spirit would reveal new truth to them too. Beyond, beyond what Jesus taught when he was here on earth. So they're not just taking Christ's teaching, which they they were, but they were going to go beyond that, applying it to new situations. And notice what he says in John 16 here. Super explicit. Listen to this. I still have many things to say to you. This is Jesus talking. But you cannot bear them now. It's like your arms aren't strong enough to carry them yet. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Same phrase as last time, the last verse we looked at. He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. Things that Jesus wanted to tell them, had many things to tell them, but the Spirit would tell them later. Okay? You see the priority of these apostles and what their task is to do. They're supposed to, the Spirit's going to bring their, 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 to their remembrance all that Jesus taught them and going to reveal to them new things. All right, and so when you get into their actual writings, you start seeing this take place. Like Paul, for instance, 
He knew his commands carried the authority of Christ's commands. Like that was sort of instinctive to him. He understood that that's as he spoke, as he wrote things down, as he wrote letters to the churches, he knew that he was, he knew that he was carrying Christ's authority as his apostle. Paul knew his commands carried the authority of Christ's commands. I'm going to click over here. We'll come back to it. Paul knew his commands carried the authority of Christ's commands. 1 Corinthians 14. He says, If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you, you see that language? The things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. All right? So, guys, quill, paper, writing, two corners. These are the commands of the Lord. They're from him because of Paul's delegated authority as an apostle. And then, if you add to that, uh, this interesting little tidbit here, that Paul commanded his letters to be read aloud to the churches. Um, That's why. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know, Nehemiah 8 especially, you see this pattern that when God had his words, like, they were discovered, they were just like, all right, Israel, come here. Like, they all get together for a whole day. Israel got up, opened the law, and like, all right, time to read, you know. They start reading. Josiah, same thing. Read the law, you know, like, we haven't been doing any of this. Like, wrath of God's going to be on us. You know, it's just, they often were just reading Scripture aloud to the people and kind of interpreting it as they went along and helping them understand, sometimes translating it in Ezra's day, you know, helping them put it together. So the point here, Paul's commanding his letters to be read aloud because he understands that what he's writing is new covenant documents that need to be disseminated. So look at this. And when this letter, the letter to the Colossians, has been read among you, swap, right? (laughs) Swap it around. Have it also read in the church of Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Paul knew He was writing revelation, that he was laying a foundation, to use Ephesians 2, he's laying a foundation for the new covenant people of God. And so he wants some interpollination happening. Hey, I wrote a letter to Laodiceans, like swap it with them. Like read theirs, you you have them read yours, it's going to benefit them. And this is in the pattern of the old covenant and what they did in the old covenant, clearly. All right? And not only that, but the apostles will often equate other writings of the apostles with the Old Testament scriptures. So, in other words, you know, you got Peter writing, and he's talking about Paul's writings, and he says, okay, Paul, Paul's writings are equated with the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. He put, they put them on the same level. Um, we'll look at a few of these. The apostles equate other apostolic writings with the Old Testament. First Timothy 5, you see um, here, Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke right alongside of Deuteronomy. Okay? Luke right alongside of Deuteronomy. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For, notice this, the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy. And, here's Luke, New Covenant, Gospel of Luke, the laborer deserves his wages. Simplicit in the New Testament. Paul understood that what Luke was writing is on the same, is on the same level as Deuteronomy. Whoa. 
All right? It's another, another, here's another one. Throw it at you. Second Peter 3. This one encourages us all, right? Ah, Peter thought Paul's letters were hard to understand. Thank goodness. You're reading Romans 7, you're like, huh? There's some, uh, some interesting stuff here. All right. We'll talk about this verse later when we talk about the clarity of Scripture. Uh, but anyway, not now. Peter says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Now notice this. As they do the other scriptures. He's saying, Paul's writing some stuff. We know it's kind of hard to understand. Ignorant, foolish people who are wrongly motivated, they take Paul's words, they twist them, just like they do the other scriptures. Oh, okay. So Paul is writing scripture here, according to Peter. So the point, the reason I'm dragging you through all that, is that we are justified in claiming that inspiration extends to all the Bible. Okay? Anything from the apostles or that apostolic circle, um, it, it belongs in our scriptures. Not only the Old Testament, right, but also the New Testament. But that raises a third question here, and it's how did inspiration happen? I must have not put any uh, animations on this PowerPoint. There you go. How did this inspiration happen? How should we think about this? Or like, I think typically when we think about inspiration... It's like, the, it's like the download, right? You know, it's kind of like, ah, you know, it's just like the, your hand starts moving. It's like, what's going on, you know? Um, and there's certainly, certainly some of that happened, like direct dictation where it's like, hey, just write this down, you know? But that's actually not as normative, okay? You can think of, you can think of inspiration as a spectrum, okay? I know you're feverishly writing this down, but stop for a second. Just look at me. There's a spectrum, okay? And on the one side of the spectrum is like the direct dictation. Okay? That's just like, write this down. You know, Revelation, I think I put that on it. Revelation 21, 5, kind of some, similar to that. Think about the prophets of old. Thus says the Lord. Here, write this down. But then there's this other side of the spectrum, and probably Luke is sort of representative of that other side of this spectrum. All inspiration where it looks like just using normal historical research methods. His own personality, he's writing in the style of a first century history, historical account. Um, he's doing that in Luke 1. So I just wanna, want, want you to see this. He says, this is like some of the highest exalted Greek we have in the New Testament, by the way. And it was like cast in the reason he's doing it this way is because he's showing his credentials. He's showing that he is a historic, or he's a historian, sort of par excellence, as he's going to tell this story. It, it basically bolsters his credentials. He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us." Notice this language. "...it seemed good to me also." Notice this, having followed all things closely. What's he talking about? Talking about tracking the apostles, what they said. He's, he's tracked them for some time past. It seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. 
that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So like per capita, volume, like that's, mo- that's like, I think it's most of the New Testament in terms of like one author. Luke and Acts, a lot of data there. 24 chapters, 28 chapters. And it's this orderly account, seemed good to him to write this, having followed all things closely, and inspiration, God is, that's no less inspired than the sort of direct dictation. Make sense? All right, I want you to see that. And so the point here is that, that God employs human literary genres to communicate the message. Does that make sense? You know what a genre is? It's like a type of literature. Poem, narrative, newspaper article. It's a genre, right? God employs these genres, human genres, to communicate the message. The sentences are shaped by the author's personality. They're shaped by his giftings. They're shaped by his individual style, right? So you look at this, it's like elegant. Luke 1 is elegant. you got 1 John. It's a different kind of elegance. It's a simplicity, right? 1 John. And so in one sense, the words are fully Paul's or fully Luke's or fully Peter's or Isaiah's words. But in a more fundamental sense, more mysterious sense, the words are God's. They originate from God. The Holy Spirit ensured that each human author accurately conveyed what God himself intended to communicate. And so that means then that the, the, what we might call the humanity of the Bible, this does not detract from divine inspiration. They go together like a hand in a glove. The, the humanity of the Bible is that we could think of it as the central medium through which God has chosen to communicate his very words with us. Okay, I know that sounds heady, but this is going to lay such a foundation for you as we think about implications coming out of this. So, what are some of those implications? Fourth question, right? What are some of the implications from the doctrine of inspiration? Well, the very fact, okay, that we have documents from God, uh, that shows us that God wants to talk to us, that God in his mercy has come to us, rebels, with a word of hope, with an olive branch, and saying, hey, come be restored to me. God has mercifully revealed himself to us, and he wants to relate to us. He took the initiative in inspiration. It's from him. We're not saying, please, show us. We're ding, 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 building idols and bowing down to them, worshiping them, killing each other, and here he comes. To reveal himself. This is an act. This is a mercy. A mercy. Next, God intends to relate to us through written texts. All right? God intends to relate to us through written texts. He went to a great deal of effort to give us this. Right? When you do a survey of Scripture, it is rare that God just shows up and speaks to people audibly. That's rare. His normal method was to speak to certain people and they write it down. Then he expected his people to follow the written documents. He expected his people to relate to him around those written texts. And he held them accountable when they didn't. Even when for large periods of time the law went undiscovered like with Josiah and then they found it again, 
and it's like, wah, we haven't been doing this for a long time, you know? That's their fault, that they let the law fall away, right? God pinned that and wanted it to relate, to kind of govern his relationship with them, these covenantal texts, these written texts. And this helps us see, okay, that God is most likely not going to speak audibly to you. All right? No matter what they say at liberty. He's not expecting you to kind of hear his still small voice or to wait on some subtle prompting this way or that. He has revealed himself to you already. He's given you what he wants you to know. God's not Hansel and Gretel you like, like, let me feel my liver quivering. Like, is this, is this actually something? Is this something? Like, he didn't stutter, okay? And there's a whole series of rich on decision-making that we could talk about. But God is not wanting to confuse you. We're going to talk about the clarity of Scripture because God wants you to know him. He wants you to make decisions in faith and confidence because of his written texts. He's given you what he thinks you need to know. And sometimes when I say this, especially to younger Christians here, um, if I think of, think of a few, um, do you kind of look back at me like, written texts? Or like, are you really, how is, how is this going to work? They feel like scriptures aren't enough to guide them in life's tough questions. Like, they want God to speak to them, to relate to them audibly. And a, an illustration I, I sometimes will use is like, okay, imagine that, you know, I talked about this with a guy, if you're here, uh, this past Thursday night. But I said, imagine you're flying a plane. He was a wannabe pilot. Said you have a map, but your map is only filled out like one percent. Everything else is black, and you're trying to fly. You're not going to feel very confident as you're flying, right? Because you, you don't you don't know. It, but it's, it's it's you just can't see what's underneath the black. Like there's a map there, but you don't know that map very well, and so you don't feel confident in the way you're living your life or the decisions you're making or whatever. You're trying to figure it out. You don't you don't have the you don't have the coordinates, right? So oftentimes. We're like, the Bible's not enough. And how much of it do you know? Right? Like, how much of this book do you know? Because the more you know it, the more confidence you're going to have in making decisions according to the will of God. All right? So don't say, the Bible's not enough, and I need God just to tell me. God's certainly working through providence. There's a lot of nuance we could talk about with decision-making, okay? But what I want to do is just hammer this point home right here as as an implication. God intends to relate to us through these written texts. But you say, okay, doesn't the Spirit speak directly to me? Doesn't he prompt me? Doesn't he communicate with me directly? Yeah, he does, through this. Right? The Spirit's role is to illumine this to you. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3. The Spirit's role is to illumine God's written word to you. That's what he's going to do, and that's how he's going to guide you. All right? And finally, last thing we could say, well, I guess we'll, we'll have to sit quick, okay? God expects us to understand his word in context. So think about that, based on everything we've said. Okay? If God's inspiring these authors to write these things down, then God's working through their intentions, isn't he? So that means, when it comes to us, we can't just be like, go and take Mary for your wife. <laughs> right? I mean, I could, I guess, did. But that's the, that's the gist, right? Like, that doesn't work that way. That is not God speaking just because you can quote a Bible verse and justify something you're doing. What does that verse mean? Right? God has an intention. He expects us to understand his words in their context 
and then derive that meaning that way. So this takes work. It might seem a little less spiritual. But that's why God's given us teachers, too, to help us understand his word. Ephesians 4. He's raised up these pastors and teachers to help you, equip you in, these, in the truth. And so God's not inspiring anymore. He's not inspiring truth anymore, but he is illumining texts through his word, and he wants us to understand them in their context, and he's going to help us. He's given us lots of, of help in that. And finally here, wrap up, last point, God wants us to treasure and depend on his word. Right? That's an implication from the view of inspiration. God took the pains to write down, have it written down, to preserve it over millennia, And in our case, to have it translated into English in like a bunch of different translations, make it affordable, give it to you for free digitally, he did that to communicate to you. And so I remember when I was first saved, it was like, man, this thing became just like, I slept with this. I wouldn't recommend that, okay? But I remember it was like, this is life. Um... And it became my treasure. And it was not like that before I was saved. And so, but, but even now, there's a, there's a temptation. The more that you know, you kind of get familiar with it. Oh, yes, yeah, Bible. But this is our greatest treasure we could ever possess. So the more we dial in on these things, this is just number one, okay, inspiration. The rest of it flows downhill. We're going to look at inerrancy next time. But the Bible is truthful. It's without error. We're going to look at that. But the more we do this, the more we kind of lay this foundation, the, the deeper commitment we're going to have to Scripture, the more we're going to act like and feel like the guy from Psalm 119. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for he's coming to us and, and, and revealing yourself to us uh, when we were rebels. Thank you for your mercy. And we pray now that uh, you would just encourage our hearts through this. Um, you would make us diligent to study and communicate your truth. Thank you for the body. I pray that as we now fellowship and spend time, we eat together, do different things together, that uh, you'll be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name.